Hey folks, welcome to the Did You Know Crypto Podcast. Today we're going to be having Pierre Rashad back on. He was here for episode 14 to talk about the scaling debate, and now he is back on to talk about Lightning. I also had another episode about Lightning a few weeks back, episode 30 with J.W. Weatherman. Overall, I'm very excited about Lightning. I do have some concerns and questions, which we do talk about in this episode. So I really think it's very helpful for people who don't quite know what this is or have heard things about Lightning and have questions about it. This will be a good overall uh, episode for you to listen to. If I could ask you real quick to do a few things for me, if you could go over to iTunes and leave a five-star and a written review, that really help, helps us. Uh, if you want to help out a little bit more, go over to supportmypodcast.com and there's all the usual ways of shopping through Amazon, uh, liking us on social media. But there's two big things I want to talk about real quick. One, I'm going to be launching a listener's discount program. It's absolutely free. You don't have to buy in. You don't have to do anything. Just go to supportmypodcast.com slash discounts. That's supportmypodcast.com slash discounts. You'll get on an email list. I'll let you know when I'm going to officially launch that. Uh, there will be a buy-in. It'll basically, I want you to leave an iTunes review. That'll be it. If you, for some reason, don't use iTunes, can't use iTunes or whatever, we can talk uh, via email in a different way, whether that's just liking and sharing on social media or something like that. But it's just basically a value for a value. I think that that's worth it. It's going to be things like Bitcoin wallets, VPNs, clothing, merchandise, healthcare products, um, things that I care about, right? And the, they're going to expand these beyond just uh, Bitcoin. And by healthcare products, I mean kind of stuff that, I prefer to use, you know, MCT oils and and various other things that uh, I think are good for people um, for health wise and concentration. But anyways, uh, the other thing I want to do is today right now, as I'm recording this, it's going to be, uh, I believe, the 29th of April when this when this uh, 2019 when this episode goes out, I am doing a fundraiser for ALS. If you don't know who Hal Finney is, Hal Finney was the first person to work on Bitcoin. Uh, he was the one who responded, the first person to respond to Satoshi. He was the first person to mine and receive a transaction. Um, he received it directly from Satoshi. He also was the first person to talk about Bitcoin publicly. His very famous quote, just two words, running Bitcoin, appeared on Twitter, on Twitter. And it was the first time anybody had talked about it on social media or publicly, really. Hal Finney was an exceptionally great person, but unfortunately he died in 2014 of Lou Gehrig's disease. And back then, the community kind of rallied around and did a big fundraiser to help support ALS and the ice, uh, ice Bucket Challenge and all that kind of stuff. I'm trying to do that again. So if you guys could go over to Twitter, if you guys could go over to Twitter and look up the handle at Bitcoin, the number four ALS, that's Bitcoin for ALS, and it'll be called Hal Finney's ALS Drive. And we're just gonna be, basically, I'm gonna be launching it this coming week. So the end of the first week of May, we are gonna be going live with this. So you can keep in contact with there as well. I'm gonna get the website up. It's gonna be Bitcoin, the number four ALS.com as well. Right now, as I'm recording it, it there's nothing on there, but uh, I think I'm just gonna put up a basic uh, information site on there. What, what it's going to be is going to be donating Bitcoin and money to the local chapter that cared for Hal. That's what his widow requested when I asked her. And so if you guys could help me out, that'd be great. I don't touch any of this money. It's going to be handled directly by the ALS Association. So there's going to be no way that I can you know, have any sort of malfeasance. Um, not that I'm that type of person, but I know people are worried about some random guy on the internet, right? So anyways, I'm going really long on this intro. 
So before we go to the episode, I want to say thank you for listening. And now, enjoy the show. I'm very happy to welcome back for a second time, Pierre Richard, co-host of the Noted Podcast with Michael Goldstein, co-founder of the Nakamoto Institute and creator of Node Launcher and Lightning Power Users. Pierre, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me on. So yeah, I want to talk to you about Lightning Network specifically, um, talk about your Node Launcher uh, project you know, a little bit later on in the show. But you know, Lightning is something that I haven't really played around with that much, or I guess really technically at all. Uh, mostly just because of bandwidth, the limitations that I have mentally um, to try to handle too many things. But it is something that I, I actually do want to do um, uh, pretty soon because I did download the Blue Wallet app, which is, you know, it's custodial and everything. It's not really like actually running a real node. Um, but and it's not necessarily either the the optimum, I guess, true uh, experience of, of running your own note. But it was well, actually we can really discuss that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and well, I mean, they actually have ability to connect to your own node now as well. But um, and but it was a, it was a different experience than Bitcoin. But it, it was you know amazingly fast, and you know just the transaction was so cheap. Uh, I basically just opened up two Lightning wallets and sent them back and forth between myself just to see how you know. And basically, it was by the time that I sent it, went to the next wallet and refreshed it, it was already there. Uh, it was, you know, and that's kind of the centralization custodial model as well. But um, and like I mentioned uh, offline, episode 30 that I did a couple of weeks ago was about lightning as well. But I would appreciate, you know, hearing your explanations. Um, and why don't we actually start off with your explanation? You can go as narrow or wide as you'd like um, on lightning network, what it is and how it works. Yeah, sure. So. Uh, I, I, the metaphor I use to try to br very briefly explain lightning, how it works is this idea of you, if you have a contract in a business with someone, you don't necessarily, well, you definitely do not go to the courthouse every time you rely on that contract. So like every time you receive a payment from your employer, you don't go to a courthouse and have a judge look at the contract and then look at what your salary is and then look at what the payroll department is sending you and then say, okay, you know, this is legally correct. Like that would be very inefficient. And so how the legal system works is that you go to the courthouse and see a judge when there's a dispute about the contract that you're relying on, not when the contract is just operating as, as, a, as all parties expect it to. So, um, Lightning and Bitcoin can be thought of as the same way, where uh, going on chain on Bitcoin is like going in front of a judge. And you only need to do that if there's a dispute about the state of a channel uh, in Lightning rather than going to it every time, which is what like sending on-chain transactions for every payment uh, is like. So basically, we're... You know, by by having a second layer, uh, we can have a layer that has different properties than the first, um, and ultimately, it does rely on the first layer because a Lightning contract is simply a valid Bitcoin transaction that at any point could be broadcast to the Bitcoin network. So, um, you know, you'll hear Lightning developers talk about 
you know, falling back on chain or, you know, going back to the chain. Um, because that's uh, all lightning does is pass around uh, valid Bitcoin transactions. Now, obviously there's, there's other parts to it, but in terms, in terms of thinking about it from kind of a, a trust perspective and an economics perspective, uh, it's not, um, it's not like it's creating an altcoin, which has been kind of a misconception where people say, Oh, you know, like it's because there's still Bitcoin transactions that you're sending around. They're just not, settled in the chain yet although i say that yet the the opening transaction for opening a a lightning channel uh is settled on chain already and that kind of anchors the payment channel that then uh you update the state of the payment channel and then once you know either the state is such that the channel capacity is all in one direction to one person then you close the channel just so that you can open a new one or uh, that there's a dispute about what the state of the channel is, and then the participants go back on chain uh, because the smart contract capability will let the chain know, uh, you know who has the latest version uh, versus who is trying to cheat by broadcasting an old version. But anyway, uh, at this point, I'm rambling. No. So do you have any like, do you want to, questions about that or do you want to go in a certain direction because there's a million different ways to, to go. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, as long as, you know, if you are comfortable with that kind of being like the, the, the foundation of, cause basically after this, I wanted to kind of, there was still some questions and, you know, kind of the, you know, the trust, but verify phrase, I, I, I try to do that, but one of the issues, and this is kind of going off on uh, digressing a little bit, but, one of the issues for non-technical people is when you're in like this trust, but verify and you go, okay, so you try to verify, but then you kind of get different explanations from different people. Right. And then it's, so it's, it gets kind of hard sometimes to be able to, you know, refute uh, or confirm, you know, a, a concern. So sometimes I've, I've, I've heard other people and on the episode before some of these questions, you know, um, had been explained to me, but, you know, I, I still had a few little other things I kind of forgot to ask as we were going along. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just something that I, I just wanted to, you know, kind of clarify in my own mind. So I guess just to basically start off is uh, the Lightning Network itself is, I, you know, I've heard people say that it's not secure as the Bitcoin main chain. Is that correct? I mean, and if so, in what kind of degrees would you say that that is correct? Yeah, so I, I think that there's different uh, ways that people use the word secure or security in the context of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies generally. Um, so I think that if, if we think, so like one way they use security is in the role of miners, uh, where they're really, what they're talking about is uh, probabilistic fi transaction finality and what is the economic cost of unburying a transaction with a deep reorg uh, in order to double spend it, uh, you know, kind of as a, a local way of, of uh, cheating the system, uh, of, or, or of scamming a, an exchange, for example. So like, that's, that's one way to look at security, which frankly, I think that it's use, applying security to that issue is a bit of a misnomer. Uh, and what we really should apply security to is people hacking your private keys. Uh, so, uh, 
either through finding a, a bug in your operating system or your browser or whatever it is that's standing in between them and the private keys, or, and this is much more, this is way easier, is to just socially engineer. So for example, by sending you a phishing email saying that like, hey, you know, this is Coinbase, you should send us money, and then you send them Bitcoin. Uh, there are way more sophisticated phishing uh, attempts or you know schemes like this, um, and I would argue that you know ICOs that are essentially uh, you know, exit scams, where the the person raising the money immediately pockets it and just flies to Egypt and hangs out on the beach, like that. Those are uh, those are the easiest ways of of getting Bitcoin. Uh, you know, much easier than hacking. So like. If we think about security from that perspective, I think that it's unquestionable that currently, with current technology, Lightning is less secure than a, a cold storage Bitcoin wallet. Now, a, a Lightning wallet has to be a hot wallet uh, for just the simple reason that if you're sending payments, you have to be signing a, a tr new transactions that are updating the state of channels. Um, so if you're routing payments or sending and receiving payments, uh, you've you've got to be uh, you got to be hot, and that you know that means that at the very least, Lightning is as insecure as any other Bitcoin hot wallet, um, and so you have kind of that basic level of insecurity from from hotness, and then you have additional levels of insecurity due to the fact that we're dealing with very new software. And I say new, I, I say new, but it's funny that I say new because a lot of people have criticized Lightning for taking so long to get to where it is today. But in, in any case, I think it's, it's undeniable that this software is newer than the Bitcoin software. Um, and that that means there might still be bugs in it, which might cause a loss of funds. Uh, so in, in that regard, uh, Lightning is also less secure than on-chain uh, Bitcoin. Now, the other part that we can start thinking about in terms of, so now we have the uh, hot wallet risk that I've discussed, the implementation risk, and then just the, the economic risk, um, which are that are the incentives on the Lightning network properly aligned such that participants uh, don't uh, abuse each other and essentially um, find ways of either doing like denial of service type attacks or um, uh, like opening a bunch of small uh, channels with someone and, uh, you know, causing problems that way. So like there's, there's different or then even worse on the incentive side is uh, what if it's the case that there's just never going to be enough liquidity for people to send payments through Lightning in a in an efficient manner? So, like that that means that it's it's not so much a security problem from you losing coins. It's a it's a kind of a practicality problem of is this system even useful for me in the first place? Um, but in any case. Uh, those are the those are the reasons I would cite for Lightning, broadly speaking, being less secure than Bitcoin. Now, 
I have this theory that eventually hot wallets will actually be considered to be in practice as secure as cold storage. And that the only security problem will be phishing and will be user error. And uh, so th- those, uh, those will be addressed. Um, and, and then the Lightning implementations will continue to, to age and to mature uh, such that we'll have a, a good amount of confidence in their ability to not lose funds. Uh, so that, I think, will eventually trend towards being as secure as Bitcoin's implementations are. Um, and yeah, so I think that it's not a given that off-chain will always be far more insecure than Bitcoin. Um, but it, you know, we can debate whether they'll be able to get to parity or close enough to where people will say, oh, you know, I... I have all of my Bitcoin on Lightning and I'm not worried about it um, versus today where you should definitely not have all your Bitcoin on Lightning. Uh, you should have a very small amount of Bitcoin on Lightning uh, and you know don't, don't overextend yourself uh, in that regard. But um, yeah, that's, that's my answer to that. Yeah, my my concerned less and 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 I guess just as far as like going forward with most of these questions is I'm I'm less concerned with the the reality at this very moment and and more and kind of what's going to be more of the reality say a decade I guess from now although we can't ever really tell yeah, but uh, right just because well I yeah. would I would just I I do want to focus on the present because I do think that there's people are underestimating the amount of work that is ahead of us. And in front of us. So um, like, I do want to be very clear eyed about the current state of lightning and not just be a a cheerleader for it. Um, And that way we actually do end up seeing developers and businesses invest in the lightning ecosystem so that we do get to this future reality where uh, we, we will have a very nice uh, lightning system. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, no, I, I, I totally understand that. I've just, um, I, I just, you know, kind of, I guess maybe I get too, too ahead of myself as well, but, uh, but, you know, as you stated, um, well, I guess, so one of the bigger concerns that I have, and this has been something that, uh, you discussed, I think just recently, um, um, with Peter and and uh, Nick um, in in his episode on on Lightning as well as the the cons you know the, the fee market issue and how that's going to interact um, in, you know, in the future and, and that will definitely affect you know Litecoin and not Litecoin I'm sorry Lightning Network um, and because Lightning Network uh, and, and you know any second layer solution is going to without a doubt at least or perhaps I'm wrong drive up on chain fees with volume dropping alongside the same time that we're watching uh, block rewards dropping as well, unless we come up with some sort of other, uh, uh, you know, uh, concept and fix for, for that in the near future. Um, but do you think that this is going to affect the security of the main chain? I've also heard that, you know, you're of the opinion that maybe we're paying too much already for security, but wouldn't that affect um, be a loss of security due to fewer miners as higher fees uh, are needed to make mining more profitable, and that's going to somewhat drive volume even lower as well on the main chain and push it more to Lightning. And there's going to be an equilibrium that that'll be reached. But the question kind of is: is that will that price discovery 
result in extremely low on-chain volume to the point where fees get uh, you know, to, to you know, high enough where, um, and, or, or will we have much lower security due to loss of miners? Do you think that that equilibrium is going to be found? We'll find that good security, you know, with, with, uh, decent fees, or do you think there's going to be a lot of kind of zigzag, you know, uh, uh, up and downs on, on both ends of the spectrum there? Yeah. So th- th- unfortunately we, we don't really have a way of knowing, do we have enough security or do we have enough transaction finality or not because uh every every person receiving bitcoin on using the bitcoin network actually has a different subjective view of how much transaction finality is enough for them because basically if you have a small value transaction on the bitcoin network that you know gets confirmed um the odds that that transaction is coming from a miner that is going to uh, perform a double spend attack on you are are nil. Uh, so already that person, uh, th- you know, t- today's uh, transaction finality is complete overkill for ninety nine percent of transactions that are going through the system. Now, what we want to look at though is. Basically, what, what are kind of like the worst case scenarios for transaction finality? Um, one would be if you, are, if you are receiving Bitcoin from a large miner and you're an exchange. And so let's say a large miner sends you $100 million worth of Bitcoin. Uh, there you are very vulnerable to a, a double spend if you essentially allow them to you know, convert into fiat or convert into another cryptocurrency or whatever it is, uh, and, and transfer their funds out, uh, and then they, they perform a, a double spend. And, and they might do that behind you know, bogus identities and, and uh, you know, whatever it is. Um, so that, that, that exchange, you know, they're going to want way more uh, confirmations than everyone else would. Uh, and so they don't necessarily know who is a miner and who is not either, right? They do most, for the most part, do KYC AML, but some of these places, they barely do that. Um, so the, the issue there is that if Bitcoin has too little uh, hash rate, then they will require an increasing number of confirmations. And if Bitcoin really has too little hash rate, then no number of confirmations is enough for them because the chain can just be rewritten uh, pretty easily. So uh, there, Bitcoin essentially becomes unusable for uh, for its purposes as a monetary instrument. Um, so we want to stay very far away from, from that uh, scenario. And we don't really have a way of knowing at what point is it so easy to double spend that exchanges are going to like delist Bitcoin. Um, right now, you know, no, no double spend on an exchange has happened with BTC. Uh, and it has happened with other smaller coins. Um, but the way this relates to Bitcoin is, is my, my theory is that uh, Lightning is actually going to dramatically increase demand for on-chain transactions. Uh, I say that partially based on personal experience, which is that I've performed 
you know, orders of magnitude more Bitcoin transactions uh, over the past six months as I've been experimenting with Lightning uh, than I ever did in, you know, the five years that I was in Bitcoin before that. So already there, I just have this this anecdotal data. Now, granted, you might say, oh, Pierre, that, you know, that's a special case. Uh, others won't have that, that, that situation. I, I'm skeptical. I, I think that a lot of people are doing a lot of on-chain transactions uh, just due to experimenting with Lightning. And then we'll see as, as Lightning scales up and as its, its usage scales up and the velocity of payments on the network increases, um, what we'll see is that there is kind of an equilibrium point between on-chain transaction fees where you're paying per the amount of data that you're you're using up, which is going to broadly speaking be the same based on you know how much value you're you're sending, um, versus Lightning where uh, you're you're you're, spe- you're 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 paying fees based on the amount of channel capacity you're using. So it's based on the amount of value that you're sending, not on the amount of data that you're sending. So those are, those are completely different fee markets, uh, and we'll see people arbitraging between those two fee markets and making money by opening and closing channels and routing payments. Um, but I, I do think that ultimately the reason that Lightning is really interesting from a Bitcoin security perspective is that the demand for on-chain transactions uh, becomes disconnected from the value being sent. So it kind of creates an inelastic demand for on-chain transactions uh, that is, is not a kind of demand that is very substitutable. So, you know, it's not like the, although we can discuss atomic swaps and maybe this will, you know, it kind of change what I'm discussing here. But the idea being that if you've opened a, a channel on, on Bitcoin, um, on, and you've used the main chain to open that channel. Now, to close that channel, you're going to use the main chain as well, and you're not really going to have the ability to uh, substitute out a different chain uh, to, to close the channel with because the smart contracts are on the Bitcoin blockchain. So in that regard, I think that inelastic demand drives up Bitcoin transaction fees and keeps them high, whereas elastic demand, where it's basically someone who's just trying to find the, the cheapest way to, uh, to, to, to send uh, value around, they're going to gravitate towards Lightning uh, instead of gravitating towards altcoins, which is what we kind of saw during the last bull market where, where people were like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm using Litecoin because uh, on-chain transaction fees for Bitcoin are too high. So... I think that what we'll see is people will say, oh, I'm using Lightning because on-chain transaction fees are too high. Uh, and then it'll only be people who are essentially either you know whales moving uh, coins on-chain or people who are having to close a channel because they want to you know, do some kind of con- channel consolidation or uh, th- rebalancing or, or whatever the, happens to be the case. Now... Uh... One of the things that kind of you know, we had the lightning torch um, going around, uh, and it just you know recently ended. But one of the things that kind of confused me, and I, I was uh, it was been mean to um, ask someone, and I thought it would it would fit really well, you know, obviously with this interview was uh, when it basically reached the last few of the torch bears. Someone in, in in the comments had asked why more people you know can't participate, 
and I can't remember who it was. It was Hollownot or somebody, but they basically respond saying, well, this is how lightning works right now. What did he mean by that? I was kind of confused and I didn't really see an answer. Oh, yeah. So, no. So that's a great question. So um, it's, it's actually part of the difficulty of understanding uh, how lightning, you know, why that, why there's a limit on sending a payment is that, it's a very different network than Bitcoin's network. So Bitcoin requires global consensus, which is why like we saw so much debate about the one megabyte block size limit um, and why it was so contentious. Uh, whereas Lightning actually uh, only requires local consensus between two channel participants, between two nodes. So that means that two nodes can set whatever rules they want. So you and I, we could we could go and um, opening up open up the the Lightning Network source code, and we could change that payment size limit, and then we could open a channel to each other, and we could be sending you know arbitrarily large payments between you and I. Now, the problem would be that we would have to open a channel directly you know with each other. Uh, we couldn't route that large payment through others because they're not following the same rules we are um if that makes sense so uh those those limits are coded into people's lightning nodes they could change them at any point um and uh they they were put there by the developers as kind of a way of minimizing the damage if there happens to be a problem with the implementation because we're so early on on using real money no, that that makes perfect sense. Um, so basically, it's kind of like a, uh, like a like a like a GFCI outlet for for noobs on Lightning, so they don't mess anything to you know mess anything up too badly. Um, so basically, indiv- you know, if if two let's just say two exchanges, uh, Coinbase, Binance, and Kraken, and all them there, you know, or or major institutional. Um, you know, in entities that interact with each other, they can just open up and make kind of almost whatever rules uh, in a certain sense that they want on the side, you know, the, 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 the size of the channel that they're sending back and forth to each other. It's just that no, they can't route that payment from say like crack into Coinbase and then Coinbase to my node, unless I'm uh, playing by those, that same set of rules, correct? Is what you're saying? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and we'll actually see, uh, this is going to be interesting, in a future version of the uh, LND uh, node, they're going to have this feature called Wumbo channels and payments, where you'll be able to opt into using uh, you know, much larger, much higher limits um, or removing the limits entirely. So that way uh, you won't have to go hack into the source code to do what I described you'll be able to just set a configuration and, um, you know, with specific peers. So, you know, maybe it's another large exchange or it's your employer or whatever. You can have a very large channel. And and just to, to clarify just a little bit further, um, if these larger entities, they're sending it through, but they couldn't send it to me unless I played by the same rules. If I was sending something, so is it the channel's, if you're, let's just say the, the the differences is just in the size limit that's amounted. But if I'm only sending, let's just say, you know, 25,000 Satoshis, I could still route it through theirs because it doesn't break that limit. They just can't 
route a larger payment than my node allows or my channel capacity is through me. Is that? Yeah, that's okay. exactly right. All yeah. right. So, okay. That, that. Yeah. And sorry, that's, that's, I, I kind of confused the two, but there's two different limits. There's the, the channel capacity limit and then the payment size. Limit. Okay. All right. Um, and another thing that I, I had uh, a question about was, was the reserve fees. So I know that, uh, you know, kind of just a little bit on Twitter, and I know you've talked about this as well before, but that people w- were kind of wondering because they'd be looking uh, and seeing that the re- re- reserve, sorry, reserve fees were fluctuating. They were going up or going down. And and basically, um, if, you know, if you had like 100,000 Satoshis in a, in a, you know, in a, in a channel and the reserve fee, will, let's just say was 25,000 Satoshis that you, you can only use those 75,000 for routing any kind of payment and sending anything, right? That reserve fee has to stay open for that channel um, on, the, on the occasion that it has to um, close and and settle on the main network. And that's basically the reserve fee is just there. So if that channel closes suddenly or anything like that, you can just automatically it'll have the payment for a main chain transaction fee, correct? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And um, I think that... This reserve fee is one of the biggest challenges in the operational complexity of of Lightning Um, because you have to like, you have to negotiate with your peer what you think the, like a competitive fee for entering, you know, a, a block in a timely manner will be. And fee estimation, even outside of Lightning, is already a very challenging part of Bitcoin. Um, But then you have to automate the uh, fee estimation negotiation between peers um, so that uh, we don't enter into a situation where, you you know, you you say, oh, we should increase the reserve. And I'm like, no, we don't need to increase the reserve. And then the outcome of that is, all right, well, let's close the channel because we can't agree. So that's kind of the, 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 which you can imagine in a scenario where if, on-chain transaction fees are going up, and so fee estimations are going up. Uh, but there's a, you know a a difficulty in the implementations, and it causes a bunch of channels to to close because the negotiation falls through. Uh, then that actually amplifies the problem because now you have a bunch more on-chain transactions that are driving fees even more. So um, we we need to be really worried about and thinking about feedback loops like that between channel fee estimation uh, or just transaction fee, on-chain transaction fee estimation and channel reserve negotiation and what the outcome of that negotiation is from a systemic perspective if, if we have a lot of nodes uh, behaving this way. So, um, yeah, the, the, that and then <laughs> the, the real big problem, though, is just how do we communicate this to the user? Because there's a lot of users that they don't even know, like they don't understand, you know, the the four million weight unit limit uh, on on blocks uh, or the mempool, you know, the backlog of transactions that's trying to get into the next block, uh, and then you know attaching a transaction fee to that. Like this is a, a fairly complex mechanism um, that is very hard to communicate to users. And then on top of that, you know, adding lightning and this this channel reserve um, and having it fluctuate, where like 
yeah, people are scratching their heads of why is my balance changing? Because we're not used to seeing our balance in our on-chain wallet to be changing, even though I would argue that it, it ought to be. What, what, your, what, your, what, what your wallet should show is what your balance is net of on-chain, anticipated on-chain transaction fees of actually sending your funds. Because what, you know, if your wallet shows that you have one Satoshi as, as your on-chain transaction balance, on-chain balance, like what it should really show you is that you have zero Satoshis because that's dust and that's unspendable. And really, it should show you that you have negative Satoshis, right? Like uh, the uh, on-chain transaction fees would have to go down a lot to, to, for you to unlock that, that Satoshi and make it economically useful. So I actually think that the problem is that on-chain transaction fees or on-chain wallets have not been educating their users about on-chain transaction fees. And thus, you know, when on-chain fees are going up, your on-chain wallet balance should actually be going down uh, because you have, uh, you know, in, a, in accounting, we call this accrual accounting, where you have to accrue the, the future cost of, you know, of doing something. You have to accrue it today uh, based on what market conditions are today uh, rather than uh, doing, you know, what's called cash accounting where you only, uh, you only show a change in the balance when cash actually goes out the door. Um, you should show a change in the balance when, when, uh, when on-chain transaction fees are going up. Yeah, it, it, it was kind of funny um, because I was playing around. I was actually trying to fill, um, basically it's transferred over like this old Jack's wallet that I realized I had like $3 in or something like that um, just as a, to, to use Blue Wallet. And then I was like, you know, I'm going to add a little bit more. And I ended up sending like five bucks uh, but the problem was, it was I, I didn't pay attention to what my um, uh, my fee was on there. And that thing's been stuck in the mempool for like a week. It's just, I'm not worried about it. Eventually, it'll make its way through. It was basically an extremely low priority transaction as the amount of um, Satoshis per byte that I put in there. But yeah. but uh, t- with the reserve fees, so one of my, one of my ish, uh, questions, I guess, with it is that, uh, you know, in the future, and, y- y- you know, you stated that, you know, you believe that at some point, pretty much the majority of Bitcoin is going to be off off chain, um, except for, you know, probably, you know, wealthy hodlers or institutional accounts that want to pay for that extra um, layer of security by having it still offline in a cold wallet and it's for long term hodling or whatever it is. But, you know, when we're still talking about uh, those on chain fees, if they go up to a certain amount. So if I had, let's say, $20 in my Lightning wallet, um, and a lot of people operate this way. It's not necessarily the correct way, but a lot of people don't have like a lot of money in their, you know, especially early on in their life in their bank accounts. You know, they've got like 150 towards the end of the month and they're, they're spending those last few pennies uh, to, you know, gas up their car. But if you had like, say, $20 in a Lightning uh, wallet and then settlement fees on chain go up to, let's just say, $100, they spike because of whatever reason. How does that work? Could that channel even stay open if the settlement fees have gone up? Um, let's say it was originally five dollars when I put that in there. I kind of knew that going in, but if they kind of go up to a hundred dollars, how you're not going to be able to use that channel anymore? Does it automatically close, or, or how does that actually work? Um, yeah. So 
Um, I, I think that like we're just going to have to see it yeah. in practice. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, because I, I actually, I, this is a, a you know a form of malpractice on my part, but I started learning about lightning in October of last year, um, and I still haven't read through the the source code of uh, the lightning daemon. So I actually have a bunch of open questions like that as well. Um, but we'll, what we'll see is that the developers will adapt the source code to what's going on on the network. Um, and, and we'll kind of try to, to modify ways around that. Now, I think that like one of the most important things is on your lightning nodes, setting a, a minimum, uh, channel size, uh, so that people don't open small channels with you that, you know, get eaten up by, uh, the, the channel reserve. Okay. Um, yeah. And then that, because like, I kind of think of it as like a lightning channel is a shock absorber for the volatility of on-chain transaction fees. And so uh, if, if we're going to, you know, if we, like we just had a fee spike um, and I saw channels that were for 50,000 Satoshis and the whole channel got taken up with reserve. So I think that 50,000 Satoshis is too, mu- too small of a shock absorber um, and that really people should be opening at minimum like a million Satoshis. Because then a million Satoshis, that's a very big shock absorber. Like on-chain transaction fees could go up significantly and you could still be routing payments through it um, and and not have to worry about. Now, the problem is that if if the shock absorber, if they actually do close the channel on you and then you know you paid out the nose in in light in on-chain transaction fees uh, because that's where the, the fee estimation was. Um, and that's kind of where you got to make sure that you open channels with people who are not going to close channels on you. Uh, and that to me is problematic because it kind of introduces an element of trust. Um, and it's not a huge amount of trust and, you know, hopefully the algorithms with autopilot will, will kind of automatically manage reputation so that it's not, it doesn't have to be like human based reputation, which is you know not not great just because it's not automated. Um, but yeah, it's going to be important to open channels with peers who have a reputation for not closing channels on you uh, when transaction fees are high. Now, I was wanted to transition um, into how people can actually start to to use Lightning now. Um, what are the the various ways I mentioned Blue Wallet at, at, at the beginning, which is you know a custodial option. Um, I know that um, uh, uh, Jack Mahler has uh, Zap, um, but then there's also actually opening up your own node. There's Casa. You have the the node launcher. So why why do you, you know if you don't mind kind of going over all the different ways that people can kind of start to actually you know from education to kind of dipping their toes into kind of jumping in um, um, full feet first. Hey folks, I hope that you're enjoying this episode as much as we did recording it. I don't have any sponsors, but if you could do me a big favor and go to iTunes and leave a five-star or a written review, that would help me out a lot. You can also help out by going to supportmypodcast.com. That's supportmypodcast.com, where you can find all the other ways that you can help out. If you actually go to the discounts tab, that's supportmypodcast.com slash discounts, you can get on an early mailing list 
and you will get access absolutely for free as a listener and supporter of this podcast to discounts for such things as VPNs, Bitcoin wallets, Bitcoin related clothing, as well as other kind of health products that I think are very helpful for people to just live a better life. So go over to supportmypodcast.com slash discounts and sign up today. Yeah, so uh, I think that, like, ideally, the the experience would be that you you start with the node launcher and you it takes you through all three steps of from being a novice to being an intermediate user to being an expert user if you choose to go up those steps, um, but that that the node launcher meets kind of the UX expectations of the uh, beginner user. Now, the, the problem with that today is that you currently need to do a full sync of the Bitcoin blockchain. So you need to download all 250 gigabytes of Bitcoin's blockchain before you can use your Lightning wallet uh, with the node launcher. So the node launcher is just a desktop or laptop application for Windows, uh, Mac OS, and Linux. And uh, it, it handles Bitcoin and Lightning nodes for you. It sets up Tor for you so that you have privacy. Um, and it's, it's just a, you can kind of think of it as a way of having your, your, your Lightning and Bitcoin nodes managed on your desktop or laptop for you. Uh, and at the same time, like it's it's not it's not custodial. Uh, you have your own private keys on your device, um, so you should definitely back up your hard drive uh, for you know anyone <laughs> using the node launcher out there. Make sure you. Yeah, I mean, you should always be backing up your laptop or desktop hard drive, but it makes it even more important when you have money on it, um, and and channels especially. So uh, the t- today the the node launcher uh, does require what's called initial block download IBD and downloading the whole blockchain. And that takes anywhere from like six hours to two weeks um, for people, just depending on how fast their internet is um, or how good their hard drive is. That's generally the two uh, kind of bottlenecks for IBD. Now, um, once IBD is done, then they can be opening and closing the node launcher and, and you know, as, as they, their laptop goes to sleep and wakes back up and, and, it automatically syncs and it, it doesn't take very long at all. Um, now, what I think will... So th- the problem is that people start IBD and they're like, I want to get on Lightning right now. So they go use Blue Wallet or another custodial wallet. Uh, that way they can be on Lightning immediately. Um, that's unfortunate because we have the technology to make it such that they can, while IBD is going on, still use Lightning in a non-custodial manner by using light client technology uh, called BIP157 or Neutrino. And so this this will be on Bitcoin's mainnet this year. And so it means that someone will be able to open the node launcher and be on Lightning in a matter of seconds, you know, as long as it would have taken them to get signed up on a uh, custodial wallet. Um, And that way they're, they're... you know, they, they have the rapid onboarding and it's non-custodial and they have a light, a Bitcoin full node that is doing IBD in the background and syncing 
Um, so when their Bitcoin node is done syncing, we can turn off the light client, BIP157 Neutrino, uh, and we can switch Lightning to using the Bitcoin blockchain or the, you know, the, fully, the full verification node uh, rather than the light client. So then I think that that gets us to having the best of both worlds where a beginner user can download this desktop application, which is as simple as Spotify or Slack. They just open it up. Uh, and it just starts running and they don't need to click anything or look at anything. It just, it's in their system tray, you know, on the, on Mac OS, it's at your top, right. Uh, where you have the kind of the system icons and on windows, it's generally at the bottom, right. Uh, where, it, you know, you have the printer and all that stuff. So, um, that way you have your nodes running in the background locally. Uh, it's very, uh, it's very nice setup. Um, and, um, you also, uh, you, it provides a base layer for you to then use uh, other graphical user interfaces. So if you want to be uh, use, sending and receiving payments in your web browser, you can install the Jewel Chrome extension, or it works on any browser, I think Firefox and Opera and uh, Brave and whatnot. Um, but the Jewel Chrome extension connects to, or the Jewel browser extension connects to your node launcher so that now you can be sending and receiving payments using your own self-hosted uh, Lightning node that uh, you can access in a very user-friendly manner with Jewel. Um, and people have really enjoyed that UX where it, you can be you can just click a button in your browser, Jewel provides a pop-up, you hit the accept, and boom, the payment's gone. And... I, I've used it a lot, and I I just I think it's it's a it's it's beautiful, uh, and we're going to continue iterating on it and making it even better. Now, you, there's other uh, UIs that you can use with your node launcher uh, setup. So um, you can use uh, the Zap desktop wallet, which provides a little more um, visibility into what your what's going on with your channels. Um, now, like there's it's got its own funkiness, but it's getting better. Uh, the um, more advanced users that really want to dig into their Lightning node data can use a web application called Ride the Lightning. Now, currently, you have to go and set it up yourself as a separate web application that, you know, you got to use the command line. It's, it's like two or three commands, but it's still, you know, having to use the command line is, is a challenge for people. And I, I, I agree, I don't like the command line myself, even though I'm a developer. That's kind of why I created the node launcher is so that I didn't have to use the command line. But uh, I'd, I'd like to create kind of a plugins framework for the node launcher where uh, for th things that are like web applications like Ride the Lightning, there's also LN Dash, which provides uh, nice graphs of what's going on your, on your Lightning node. It's like a, kind of like a dashboard. Uh, there's a number of others, uh, probably too many for me to list, but I'd, I'd, I'd like a plugin framework that kind of allows you to manage those. And then the user who is more intermediate to advanced, uh, who's like running a routing node and, you know, uh, trying to optimize things, they can go and install Ride the Lightning by just clicking a button in the, in the node launcher and then having their the web page show up in their web browser, you know, localhost, port 5000 or whatever, uh, and, and using it that way so that... Um, you have access to all the best open source tools 
uh, and it's all this layer that above the node launcher that is using Bitcoin in the best possible manner, which is you know with a full node uh, with with your own Lightning node. Um, yeah, so I'm rambling, but uh, yeah, I think that we can create a, a solution that caters to beginners, to intermediate users, and to expert users, uh, where they don't have to like hop between different services. They can be using the same Lightning wallet throughout their journey as as they become more and more advanced. No, uh, I I have great confidence as far as for you know in the future too, because I if you remember. You know, a lot of the early uh, applications that we saw, I mean, I wasn't, you know, obviously neither of us were in the very early, early days of the internet, but the, you know, even the late 90s, um, just kind of, you know, the interact, to even build like a, a basic website, all that stuff was just so um, pretty difficult. And most of them looked pretty terrible. Um, they were laden with GIFs on GeoCities and all that. But, you know, now you can actually do it pretty simply. They, you know, a lot of these products come out and I'm, I think that that a lot of what's to come um, for interaction on these. Are you, I guess, to 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 go back a little bit? Um, do you are you as opposed to, you know, with Bitcoin main chain in the past, uh, a lot of people have issues. You know, obviously, you know, it's not your keys, not your Bitcoin sort of thing. Don't really have any kind of custodial services but do you see that custodials are maybe not as bad for for lightning or are they just as bad as they are on main chain or is it just kind of two completely separate things and it's not apples to apples so i i think that there's a number of different problems with custodial solutions that um really speak to whether uh on chain is needs more self-custody than off-chain. Basically, um, I would say that the, the negatives for custodial solutions for Lightning, uh, number one, I see is a problem of privacy. Um, and so the, you know there is a third party that is collecting all of your payments information uh, in some detail, and um, that's, that sucks. <laughs> um, and that means that they can get hacked and your, you know, payments information can leak and, uh, same problem with, you know, the banking system and bank records getting hacked and, uh, you know, the government hacking into bank records or subpoenaing them or, you know, getting involved in litigation or whatever it is, or the company gets acquired by another company you know, that resells your data and all this. So, I don't think it's a good idea to give your data to, to third parties uh, when you have the ability not to, uh, you know, if you're self-custodying. Um, then the the other issue is the... Um, so there to me, like, okay, the counter-argument would be, well, it's really nice to have someone else backing up your data because, uh, you know, what, what if you accidentally lose your data? So... There it's like, well, okay, that's plausible, but I, I'm, I'm not so sure about that. You, you should be able to, you should be able to confidently and reliably back up your own data. Um, and if it really is such an important, you know, thing for you, having you know offsite backup where you know we have a backup in Australia and in you know in Europe or um, so there, and also like. The other thing is that third parties can lose your data as well. Uh, recently, it was found out that um, this old social network that uh, people used to be on called MySpace, 
um, it had it had a heavy like music component to it, and it was found out that uh, a lot of the early audio tracks that people had posted on MySpace were no longer available. They had accidentally deleted that data uh, in in kind of a database upgrade. So you know, third parties can can lose your data. They can accidentally delete it. It's not just the problem of them like giving it to someone else, you know, which is kind of them sharing it, which is <laughs> strangely like the opposite problem of them deleting it would be them copying it. Um, but anyway, uh, so those are problems. Um, and then the issue of people, you know, losing your funds. Like if people, if someone else is holding your money, uh, they can they can lose your money. Now you could argue that. For a lot of people, uh, it's actually the bigger problem is them losing their own money. Like they they have poor key management and they accidentally delete their funds. So there's arguments in both directions on, on this particular issue of who can more securely hold uh, coins. Is it a professional service provider uh, that has a dedicated security team that is staying on top of things? Or is it... Uh, you know, an individual user, because, you know, you could argue that a lot of individual users are, are better than a, a, uh, an institution holding the money just from the insider risk. Like you don't have any insider risk when it's yourself, uh, you know, it's your own money. Uh, but an exchange always has insiders that, you know, could potentially take your coins. And we saw this with Quadriga CX in, um, in Canada where, uh, the the funds disappeared uh, potentially from an inside job. We don't know yet, um, but there's a rich history in in Bitcoin of exchanges getting hacked and losing funds. So that that that's a problem as well. Um, now, is that worse for Bitcoin? I think it is worse for Bitcoin because you're holding more value on Bitcoin, right? Uh, on Lightning, you should be holding very little value because it's just kind of your your say your your checking account, your walking around money, the cash in your wallet. Whereas Bitcoin is kind of like the, the 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 gold bullion that you are storing for for long term. So um, there's the store of value. Uh, so there, you know, you could say, well, because you're using Bitcoin as a store of value, you need to hold your own keys, um, and uh, that way you you minimize the risk of the funds getting hacked or the the cost of the funds getting hacked is much higher on Bitcoin than on Lightning. So that's an argument for why, you know, maybe it's okay to have custodial Lightning wallets. Now, the other argument for why it might be okay to have custodial Lightning wallets is the difficulty of channel management. And so, you know, it's it's better for your ability to send payments if you aggregate your 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 liquidity with others. So instead of opening one channel for a million Satoshis, what if you get together with, you know, hundreds of other people and open, you know, 12 channels with, you know, the you know, 12 million Satoshis each. So that way you, your likelihood of having a transit or having a payment route, it goes up a lot. So there that's, that's a problem, right? We should have uh, features on the Lightning Network like uh, atomic multipath, um, like uh, improved auto uh, autopilot, so that p- people don't have this problem of how to open channels strategically, so that they maximize the uh, the likelihood of routing payments. Um, 
So that's that's another argument for why it might be better at this point to have custodial lightning wallets. I mean, that that to me though, people should be experimenting. People should be trying something out new that they've never done before when they're using lightning. They and so if if they're experimenting, then to me it doesn't make sense that you would only go with a custodial wallet. I think they or only go with a non-custodial wallet. I think you should try both. Um, and the only reason to not use a custodial wallet in the context of experimenting would be if you know you're having to KYC AML yourself, and then like now you're just creating a big liability for yourself just uh, when you should be experimenting in a positive way. Um, so, and I say the same thing about like running a full node and whether you should use you know uh, a nodal nodalit node uh, or build your own Raspberry Pi or use a Casa node, like you should be experimenting. So try all of those if you want to try them or uh, really experiment with running a node on your own hardware that you already have. So like I, we've seen people uh, experiment with installing a lightning node on like an Amazon Fire Stick or um, there, there's we have all these devices around us, these laptops and desktops. Uh, you, you might have an old device in an attic uh, that you could turn on and see if it, you can run a full node on it. So um, and then you could run a lightning node on top of that. So I think that experimentation is, is uh, if, if that's the spirit by which we're going into this, uh, we should be trying both custodial and non-custodial. Um, and really the, the biggest issue I have, I think, with custodial is the decentralization aspect of it is we're, we're doing this because we want things to be decentralized because we know that that trusted third parties are security holes and that they long-term are harmful to, to users. So um, if we want to have a decentralized system, uh, we should be trying to make it as easy as possible to do things non-custodially uh, and to do things in a self-hosted manner. But that, that was actually the, the, the last question that i had did you have like any kind of closing thoughts um how how should uh you know people um you know you mentioned go to node launcher is that really where they're is that where you think their first stop should be if they go like you know i would like to learn learn more about lightning and and start using it that they should head over to node launcher uh yeah so i, I there's different points of view on this but my point of view is that I, I learn best when I do things, not when I just like read a book or, you know, read a website. So that's where like, I think that you should just go, go. Uh, I think if you Google at this point, if you Google node launcher, let's see. Yeah. Just Google node launcher. And, um, it's, it's the first link, the releases, uh, download it. Um, now there is a guide. I mean, the guide has gotten shorter and shorter as I've simplified the node launcher. And so now, now you just need to like download the app, open the app, and then it'll open, it'll, it'll start doing its thing and you can just leave it alone. Um, now if you, then you can start clicking around if you want to kind of explore what's going on. Um, but it, it automatically starts initial block download and then it automatically starts your lightning wallet. Um, so, that's where I would recommend people start. Uh, and then while it's syncing, while the, the full node is syncing, uh, go and start digging into the technical side of Bitcoin. So um, what I would do is just Google 
uh, technical side of Bitcoin. I have a medium post called understanding the technical side of Bitcoin. Uh, and you can, it has a bunch of links in it to people explaining Bitcoin on a more, you know, granular level than the usual, uh, platitudes that we get about decentralization and blockchain technology and all this. So, um, I'd highly recommend uh, working through that medium post so that you can build up an understanding of like what makes the lightning network so special. You know, why, why is, why is it that these smart contracts are even possible? You know, what are the features that are being used on the Bitcoin blockchain uh, that is enabling these contracts? Like it's a fascinating world to dive into. And if you're interested in, in Bitcoin, because you know, the price has gone up a lot um, and that's what appeals to you. Like, I, I think that it behooves you to understand why, what the fundamentals of the, are driving this are. And the fundamentals really are about the technology um, and, and what it enables. Uh, and so I would highly recommend that you stop looking at the price charts for a little bit and it start educating yourself on what both how Bitcoin works and why that's different than other systems, both centralized systems like the current, you know, federal reserve system or other fiat currencies or the historical gold standard, um, but also being able to compare it to how uh, other, you know, cryptocurrencies use uh, this technology and, and seeing like, who, who do you believe uh, regarding monetary policy? Who has the most credible monetary policy? Is it Bitcoin or is it all these other altcoins? I think that that ultimately comes back to the technology, which is uh, you know, how, how are consensus rules uh, formed and enforced uh, and automated uh, through these networks. But anyway, I could go on about this stuff for decades. Um, thanks for having me on your podcast. Uh, if your listeners are looking for more podcasting, uh, check out uh, the Noted podcast that I co-host with Michael Goldstein. Um, Michael Goldstein is the founder and president of the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute. Uh, so definitely go to nakamotoinstitute.org uh, and read everything that's been written uh, about, you know, that read everything that's been published on the Nakamoto Institute. Obviously, not everything that's been written is on there. Um, but uh check that out i think that people you know um like everything in bitcoin has already been discussed in a way like if you go back and look at old uh bitcoin talk forum posts like all of uh, all of the scaling stuff all of it it's uh, it's been discussed for years now like and uh, people you know start uh entering the space uh, during bull markets or you know there's always new people coming in and they they think that like, and I, I thought this as well. So like in 2013, when I was learning a lot about Bitcoin, I would hear people debating things and I'm like, oh, this person is having new ideas. But no, they're just rehashing debates that happened in 2011 or 2010 or 2009. So like there's, I would argue that there's like almost nothing new going on in Bitcoin um, in, in terms of debates. Um, but there's a lot new going on in terms of, of technology. Um, in any case, go to the Nakamoto Institute, learn about the debates, uh, read up uh, some. I've, I've posted uh, posts in the mempool, and these are like little blog posts, 
and now now they're like getting old and it's making me feel <laughs> old but um the first one that i specifically wrote about bitcoin was in february 2013 which is already five years ago it's crazy to me um because like when i like i still think of myself as like being new to bitcoin and then people who were in it in 2011 you know like trace mayer and whatnot like those are the ogs not me um but now people like refer to me as an og which is just mind-boggling to me so um but anyway, uh, th these are, um, I think that they've held the test of time, but there's predictions in there that have not played out yet, uh, you know, like hyper-Bitcoinization and whatnot. But we'll see about that. Um, yeah, the, the Noted Bitcoin podcast. And um, also check out, obviously, my Twitter at Pierre underscore Rochard. I spend way too much time on Twitter, but it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, and uh let's see do i have anything else to show you know if you are looking for inbound capacity if you're a lightning node uh so that's if you're receiving payments or you're send or you're wanting to route payments uh then definitely go to lightningpowerusers.com and if you have a channel open with me already um i'll open a channel in your direction uh or if you want a channel in your direction and you want to pay for the capacity uh you can do that too um and yeah, check out the Jewel Chrome extension, I think, or browser extension. I think that it's really the best way to interact with the Lightning Network and with the node launcher that's available right now. Yeah, and I have, uh, and, or I should say, I will have links uh, to everything that we discussed, the, the, the podcast, Twitter handles, uh, Lightning Power users, and, and everything else. I've, I've been uh, keeping notes as we've been talking. So if you go to diginocrypto.com, uh, you'll see this will be episode uh, 33 and all the notes will be down in there. And, and once again, Pierre, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This was fun. Hey, folks, thank you for listening to this episode of the Did You Know Crypto podcast. I really thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen. As I said at the very beginning, if you could do me a big favor, go to Bitcoin4ALS.com and see how you can help with this ALS fund drive at Bitcoin and or cash through the ALS Association. If you don't see anything there directly, just go later on in the week, probably around May 4th. It'll all be live of all the information on there. You can also go onto iTunes and leave me a five-star and a written review. That would help out as much. But, but please, really, if you can only do one thing for the next couple of weeks, go over to Bitcoin for ALS. Let's show Fran Finney, his widow, how much this community really appreciates all that Hal did to bring Bitcoin to reality. And once again, thanks for listening.